0: Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining the Behind Company Lines podcast. Today we have Carlos Gaiten Ospina, CEO and co-founder of Benchmark Labs, which combines grid-level weather data, site-based IoT sensors, and propriety AI software to provide precise asset location, allocated weather forecasting to optimize renewable energy generation and water allocation, reducing spatial basis risk and maximize financial benefits. That's a mouthful, but Carlos, thank you so much for joining the show. I'm always excited, like I mentioned before the show, to talk to individuals who are working in the sustainability slash data space within how we can better utilize our resources. Because there's always some interesting topics you dive into that are really, really fundamentally important for everyone in their everyday life. So really fun to chat with you. But before we get into all that good stuff, what were you doing before you started Benchmark Labs?
1: Thank you, uh, Julian, for the invitation. Big fan of Behind the Company Lines. I think that it's a fantastic, actually, name for the podcast. Thank Uh, you. (laughs) So, yeah, that's awesome. And I had to go to your question. Yeah, I did many different things before uh, Benchmark Labs. I worked at universities, had worked at the government in national labs, learning about how weather models were created, contacting users. Then work to then move to the private sector, working hardware companies, consulting companies. And yeah. then it became clear that we had to create a benchmark labs to solve a need that so many yeah. users were demanding a solution for.
0: Yeah. And what was that need in particular that, that you were inspired to solve?
1: Thank you. Yeah. So many users were asking us, Hey, Carlos, what can you do to help us to get better weather forecasts for? Our particular location, it could be a farm, it could be a ski resort, it could be a really small area, while uh, traditional alternatives for weather forecasting, they focus on providing the best available forecast for a region, let's say over North America or in California, Mm -hmm. and not, they don't tailor the forecast to specific locations like a farm.
0: Yeah. What in particular goes into the forecasting? I, I we had a few, uh, like I mentioned before, we had a few owners on who were, who were working within weather forecasting, and the one was a satellite company, another was more of an analytics as well. But what goes into the chain of events for us, as a as an individual, to know what what you know, our forecast is for the day? Like what what is in the process? If you can describe how, at the lowest level, we can understand. You know, if it's going to be sunny, if it's going to be rainy, if it's going to be cloudy, yeah, our localized forecast, what goes into that?
1: Yeah, thank you. Super insightful question because in many ways, uh, weather affects all of us. um, And it's always a combination of multiple features uh, of what is happening at your location versus what is happening uh, also could be on the Pacific. Yeah, so to simplify the the story a little bit, you need to understand uh, bigger systems that are going to appear or that will appear around your county, your state, and then you also need to understand what is happening at your specific location, which could be an area, for example, near a lake where you get more relative humidity because the lake uh, evaporates all that water uh, during certain times of the the day, or uh, near irrigation districts, for example, or you could be Having different microclimates depending on the type of land cover that it's around you. For example, yeah. you know, ski resorts have a very particular microclimate. Golf courses also are affected by microclimates that they actually generate because, in so many cases, around the, especially here in Southern California, you see that the vegetation is so different inside of the golf courses and outside in the surrounding neighborhoods. So it's always a yeah. combination of both.
0: Yeah. Well, When you say you mentioned the word systems a couple of times, are you describing like weather as a system, and, and what's involved in in the system that that we might not know, and and what are the different, I guess, layers to to that system, or the different, I guess, that that are incorporated into an overall weather system?
1: Yeah. So so yeah, we consider the the weather as a system. Basically, it's a it's a global phenomenon. It has like inputs. It has outputs. It's governed by equations of motion. You know, we understand that the earth rotates, then we have like fluids, like water in the ocean. We have the atmosphere that is also a gas that moves Mm -hmm. very differently than the water and how the water and the accident. You have also snow, for example, on the mountains, creating a snow melt for rivers that will go into the oceans. Then you have ice caps, you have the North Pole, you have Antarctica, you have changes in vegetation that changes uh, with seasons. And all of those ones affect the weather as a whole. So that's why we consider it that kind of a system.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, how can we better understand the system? Is it is it a combination of things? Is it having better instruments? Is it collecting better data, analyzing data better? How can we understand our, our you know our forecasting of, of weather and data and allocation of resources?
1: In many ways, it's all of the above. You need better <laughs> instrumentation, better processing tools, better uh, cleaning tools of yeah. observations and so everybody contributes a small little grain of sand to, yeah. the, to solving the problem. For example, we have satellite data that you mentioned that other founders came and it's very important to understand, uh, for example, what is happening in the globe in areas where there are no observations. So you can get a better understanding of, from a high level. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you also need a uh, ground truth data, the weather stations, sensors that record what is actually happening and that could help to calibrate those satellite images because they are biased. They are drones, they are weather balloons, uh, aviation, and then of course, uh, instrumentation in the ocean and in the depths of the ocean. So all of those ones uh, are very important. Uh, And many areas, uh, to be totally honest, are not instrumented at all. Uh, the density of instruments is higher in the northern hemisphere. As you can imagine in North America and Europe has like more observations of data than the developing world in the of years. So
0: Yeah. And it's the main result of not having, you know, instrument instrumentation, just like being more susceptible to, you know, certain degrees of like you know, magnitude of, if weather changes. If, is it that or is it something else that, you know, what I guess what is the biggest fear for not having, you know, densely instrumented, I guess, sensors that can provide you insights on, on weather? Is it, you know, like I said, being being susceptible to catastrophic events or is it, you know, just localized in terms of long term seasonality with with farming and things like that? What yeah, what are the biggest issues with not having instruments in certain areas? No, fantastic question. The
1: the bigger problem is that If you don't have uh, observations, you actually don't know what the truth is. So all your models uh, are inferring what it might be a possible truth. They, you know, governed by equations of motion and physics, but there are many different possible solutions for states that could be or could be given that will provide a possible weather realization at a specific area. So if you don't have the real observations, the model will basically assume what is happening there. But if you have the observations, you can actually correct the model and say, hey, no, actually you need more understanding of the processes. For example, you can say the the vegetation in this area is not high grass. It could be low grass. And that by itself has a huge effect on how much water gets transmitted into the, into the atmosphere. For example, a similar situation with snow, it sometimes are parameters that you can tweak in the models that are possible they have a range of of possible uh, values some parameters uh, they call them parameterizations too. values that for example could be possible between 0.9 and 0.95 but if you don't have the observations maybe the 0.95 value an example could be good enough but if you have the observations that one you will say like oh no this is giving a value that it will be too warm in a specific area and the errors will be too high so Let's tweak it. Maybe it's the zero point ninety four, you know, and that by itself it's uh, it's an improvement on the model. Yeah, this is all a totally oversimplification, but I, you get the point of. <laughs> yeah, you no, know, I as, of like observations.
0: Yeah, no, hundred percent, and and the, I feel like the accuracy just it it has so many effects to different you know different people and and different things. But I, I'm curious. One founder told me that you know. Or, and I even watched it in a, in, a, in a Netflix documentary and when it talked about weather and, and how you know, the information is, is distributed. But they were talking about how weather is becoming more commercialized. And I'm not sure if you've seen that yourself, but if you are, do you view that as a good thing or, or, or a bad thing? Or is it more complicated than, than good or bad? I uh, probably say uh,
1: more complicated than good and bad. I don't think that necessarily is being more uh, commercialized. It, it, uh, I see that what is happening is that there are way more use cases mm-hmm. uh, than what the national weather services can provide the information for. Where technologies were derived, uh, you know, by hand at the beginning, based on observations. And it took like longer for the uh, scientists to cal- calculate the possible weather forecast than for, let's say, the next hour. It took more than one hour to provide a forecast for the one hour. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that we have gone like great lengths since that time. But in many ways, the the weather models from uh, National Weather Services, they were used for aviation, uh, yeah. national security, uh, you know, aviation, even, uh, you know, Second World War, you, t- you can talk about the invasion of Normandy. But there are many more use cases. Now, of course, we have uh, cell phones in our hand, and everybody could just say, could have access to weather information. So now they are, it's like, it's a very interesting time because there are more specific use cases, for example. What happens if I really need high-frequency data? Very precise of what is going to happen in the next minute, next few minutes, up to the next hour. You know, that's the domain of traders. For the, probably from the government, it's a little value because it's already providing a a forecast that is good enough and serves 95% of the population. But there are these specific use cases that what happens if I really need information for what is just happening in the next 15 minutes. And that's important for energy, for, uh, you know, stocks and trading. And so there's potential to commercialize in many areas where the current generation of weather models have gaps going uh, beyond the the um, the weather range of 15 days, for example, this like... A huge amount of work being done, trying to extend those capabilities and making it more precise, improving the forecast for the middle of the ocean, for example. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it it could be commercialized, but of course it's because there is a gap between what is offered by the national weather services and what uh, some specific users need. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, in, in regards to like, you know, the distribution of information, how, how much does, you know, do governments in general control the distribution of that information or is it, do they control the access of it? where, where is the involvement there and, and what is, what is your involvement when you said you worked with government before and, and then you worked with the private sector as well, how involved are governments in the, the distribution of the information, the allocation, the, the access, and is, is that, is it a positive experience overall? I could argue that
1: probably most of the governments in the world are heavily involved in weather forecasting here in the United States, weather forecasting goes under the umbrella of the Department of Commerce. But it it depends and and each country is different. So we have here freedom of information, data is uh, paid by rate payers, by taxpayers. It has to be made accessible. But that's not the case uh, globally. Uh, In some areas, some people have to pay for those services or the the government doesn't, those many governments, charge for weather data. Yeah. If you want uh, for example, what happened at the airport of, of Los Angeles, you want to get the historical data because you might be interested in a project, but you might be interested in insurance applications. Uh, some governments might charge for that, that level of data. Yes. Here in the United States, you can get it for free. So it, it depends. And uh, you can see that that opens the the door for many private companies to, to go and fulfill those needs. And that's why, for example, IBM went in uh, AccuWeather, Weather Underground, and there are way and more uh, and service providers globally.
0: Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned, you know, just having different access and, and involvement in different countries within, you know, weather and, um, what can we do? You know, we were talking about, yeah, you're, you're originally from Colombia, like you mentioned. And then, you know, I I mentioned to you, my family is originally from Mexico. How can we provide better better kind of, whether it's data or or weather forecasting in countries that are either, you know, I I wouldn't say, you know, countries like Colombia and Mexico, they're they're developed, you know, they're not like countries, you know, in some countries in Africa, but there are (laughs) some countries within South America that are underdeveloped as well. But how can we offer better weather forecasting in areas that either don't have the instrumentation, or don't have the resources to invest in that, or, or maybe don't have the prioritization to invest in, you know, weather collecting and distribution of that information. How can how can we provide better resources to those countries?
1: Yeah, it's a fantastic question. There are many mechanisms, even by governments, United Nations, World Bank. There are grants. There are transfer mechanisms of technology. Yeah. So that's one way that the technologies get to be implemented in the de- developing world, let's say, because also we have to take into consideration, as you mentioned, instrumentation, like the cost of an instrument here in the United States. If you earn in dollars is X, but if you have to take into consideration exchange rate of Mexico or Colombia or the we even know what is happening with the supply chain and the economies globally where even the British found is losing its purchase power versus the American dollar. So, you know, goods and services charging US dollars are in many ways less competitive now because of the difference in, in purchase power. So that's where different organizations and mechanisms come to. It uh, could be subsidized the hardware costs to do technology transfer. Also from government to government, those kinds of mechanisms exist mm-hmm. with the World Meteorological Organization, where uh, it is from the developing world come to leading economies or government labs that have been doing like cutting edge uh, weather forecasting for decades, and then uh, they get to experience and to transfer what they learned and bring it back to their countries. So yeah. uh, there are many ways that, of course, this this can happen. But uh, from the private sector perspective, we could, or what we do, it's we try to offer solutions that could help them to be more competitive in, in the face of extreme events, in the face of managing labor, saving water, energy, resources. So in many ways, some of the crops are commoditized and they are even grown in local currency, but they're paid in dollars, Mm. which it's not good for the locals that buy the product, but if the product is for export, then they get more money back when they translate it into their local currencies. So at uh, the cost of services, like the ones that we provide, for example, could be in any be transferred to the end user or the end customer that will be North America or Europe.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And in regards to, you know, Benchmark Labs, tell us a little bit about the traction. You, you were, your tech startup back company, which is so exciting. And you come with a big name behind you and, and you're, you're pushing this initiative to not only better the precision of weather data, but also to provide it, you know, to maybe individuals or, or companies or institutions that, that had limited or maybe no access. What are some exciting feats that you've recently reached? Who, who are some exciting partners you started working with? And what are, what are some, you know, s- some outcomes that you're particularly excited about as you continue to build on the, the recent success?
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we're very excited about adoption of our technology. Since the time of Techstars, uh, we now survey users in South America, Europe, and North America. We showed that the technology can be transferred to the developing world and that it's a global solution, which is pretty exciting. We had great testimonials. We have been recently in the news, even in uh, ABC7 in LA, where you are recording from. So we have uh, fantastic testimonials about water use, how we can help them to save water. And uh, not only that, but how they, their yields for their products were actually increased by having these high, high precise information to manage their the crops. So yeah.
0: pretty exciting. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible to see how, you know, like like we mentioned earlier in the show, is, is how the effects trickle down to the average person and really working together to kind of get our resources productively, successfully, and and, and with a mindset of of long-term sustainability, it's just an overall benefit. I I don't think people can argue the opposite of that. What are some of the biggest risks that benchmark faces today? So we always
1: have like, of course, internal risks and external risks uh, that can affect us. Of course, the funding environment. To a certain degree, it's it it has an effect on startups all over the world in terms of like how we cease to get institutional investment. So if we want to scale. We have also to take into consideration what is happening at the macro level on the economy to try to use our dollars and the contracts that we have earned, the money that we are returning in the best way possible, taking into consideration if, you know, what's the length of the financial crisis? What is going to happen next year? Is it going to be worse or not? So... There are lots of macro forces there that uh, can affect us, of course, in terms of a runway that could affect uh, how fast we scale, how many hires will be happening in the next year to try to conserve our resources. But, and of course, at the macro level, you have like situations that are like so devastating, like the war in Ukraine and that's affecting supply chain, logistics, the supply of uh, sunflower. And that we probably, I don't know if you saw it in the news, even that affected and created very interesting problems in terms of all the sunflower problems that, you know, oils, butter, uh, many different prices have been going up and up and up, up to 30%, 50% in some cases. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Ukraine has like such a big breadbasket for Europe. So that affects everybody globally. So all of those macro situations, you know, we have to take into consideration. For
0: example, yeah. yeah. Well, if if everything goes well, what's the long term vision for Benchmark? Oh, it's well. We will
1: be the go to uh, weather forecasting for specialty crops and high value land managers. Uh, so we're very focused on providing extra value for agricultural users in a traditionally underserved uh, uh, markets. And for, we're not focusing on wheat and sowing. Can we want to talk with growers that are affected by microclimates? For example, here in California, from yeah. almonds to pistachios to grapes, could be coffee, could be tea. So many yeah. products are vulnerable to weather, but not necessarily have uh, agricultural insurance or receive the benefits that row crop farmers might receive in the Midwest. So yeah. if things go well, we will be. Uh, providing those forecasts to, specialty crop growers globally.
0: Yeah, yeah. Is there any is there any crop in particular that you selfishly want to make sure always stays around? In, in anything that you you like in particular? For me, <laughs> for me, <Yeah. laughs> it's like uh, the the pistachio one. For me, is uh, I'd like that one to stick around. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's fantastic. We'll we'll try to see how we can help pistachio growers. And yeah, personally, I would like to help, of course, growers of coffee. I'm yeah. from Colombia and that's a huge part of the, the economy. Yeah, yeah. and that uh, a coffee grows and, and from, you know, from Mexico to Central America, there are like millions of people that depend on high-value coffees that yeah. are affected by climate change, by weather variability. Yeah. we can help them to be more competitive and that will be a fantastic dream.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I, just kind of a sidebar question. What do you think in terms of, you know, industries that are going to have, you know, more and more growth in the next few years, is is climate technology one of those that you see just growing exponentially as the years come? And and technology around sustainability, from what my perspective is, it's becoming so much of a, you know, important that we all have to to really focus on technology that's going to sustain, you know, whether it's crops, whether it's, you know, the resources that we all share. But what's your forecast in terms of the the growth of, of climate technology, in your opinion, in the next, you know, two to three to five years. Yeah. How do you see it?
1: Well, yeah. now the, 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 time is right for uh, climate tech uh, companies, uh, especially because there are so many opportunities with the governments, at least even internally here in the United States and the European Union to a certain degree. There are lots of regulatory changes that favor clean tech investments. So while these economic wins are favorable then uh, more venture capital money will come uh, in the direction of uh, clean tech companies. And uh, investors will be more likely to take some risk in terms of development. Yeah. So yeah. I think that it's a, it's a very green field yeah. to, to invest, to to scale, and uh, to have a huge impact in the economy and in the living conditions globally.
0: Yeah. Do you, do you have a, a percentage in mind that, that you think it'll grow to in, in terms of where it is now? If not, that's okay. <laughs> I was like that.
1: No, no, it's, it's interesting. Like, so yeah, it depends. You know, instrumentation is growing at 17% year over year. There are new sectors that are totally new, for example, fire tech. Yeah. So yeah. probably the, the order of like growth, it will be in the two digits easily for the next five to 10 years because it's being held, you know, underserved, underfunded, but now people are getting aware of. Forest fire conditions, control burns, what is happening, you know, like mitigation strategies. And uh, there's a lot of technology that needs to be developed and deployed if we want to be sustainable. Because every year now in North America, you hear about uh, like a devastating forest fire. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, it has huge implications at yeah. the economy levels, at the personal levels, you know, generation, of course, and the livelihood of people living in those areas. Sometimes our are counties that are decimated by forest fires. Yeah, it depends. And uh, of course, we have like clean tech in the traditional sense of uh, probably renewables, Mm -hmm. uh, batteries, storage. That is very interesting Uh, alternative ways of energy. So, of course, we have like solar, wind, but also this potential for wave energy uh, coming from the ocean, Uh, different sources. So it's, it's going to be interesting.
0: Yeah, no, it's exciting to see the different creative like solutions that are coming out in, in so many different sectors that's really pushing this this whole path forward to create a sustainable world and, and create or, or have resources that won't have an expiration date. And, and you're so right. I mean, in, in California, you know, if, if you go from one county to another, you might still be in a fires and it doesn't just affect the obviously it devastates the local community. But, you know, I think companies, especially energy companies are becoming affected by it and are now seeing that that it does affect them. And influence you know their business as much so it's it's gonna be interesting to see where the space goes in the next few years but before i let you go i always like to ask my founders this question not only for selfish research but also for my audience what funds or people have influenced you the most
1: works of people how influenced me the most that's very interesting i think that it comes for uh, different periods of my life uh, how like they're fortunate to be around uh, that people that say they are good influence or like, oh, that would be interesting. So, for example, you know, when I was in Colombia, I had the fortune to, to work with a very forward-looking research group that didn't only consider traditional engineering the practices, but was also taking into consideration the environment. So what's the cost of a, of a tree, for example? Of, or what's the cost of how you monetize or like quantify the ability for your family to go to the lake and fish? And so in those paradigms, I think that uh, I owe that to my professor Nelson Obregonder in in Colombia and the group that he created. Then my PhD advisor in British Columbia hugely influential. He wrote the first book in terms of applications of machine learning in environmental sciences. So he he helped me to lead the light of looking for applications and how to use these new technologies for the
0: the bigger good. Yeah, that's incredible. And yeah, last little bit, I would like to give our founders a way to help us, the audience, support your vision, your your, your technology, and, and where you're headed. Give us your LinkedIn's, give us your website, your your Twitter handles, where can we support and find Benchmark Labs? Oh, thank you. Yeah, please uh,
1: follow us at benchmarklabs.com. Uh, Twitter handle is labsbenchmark. And uh, yeah, please, uh, my personal... Twitter is uh, cfgaitan, but uh, we are happy to connect with the audience and help them in this entrepreneurial journey in any
0: way possible. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Carlos. I hope you enjoyed your time and, and thank you so much for being on the show, giving us your insights from, you know, your, your career, your, your, your experience, your expertise, and also the insights and in, in things that we might not know about weather and technology and how it influences us, you know, on a macro and micro scale. So again, thank you so much for being on the show.
1: No, no. Thank you very much for the invitation. And yeah, please let me know how I can help in the future. Absolutely. It was a great experience.
0: Yeah.